So bringing awareness into the present, here and now. And this Yoni So Manisikara, considered attention, what you give attention to, what you leave out. Attention is always selective. That's why it has to be handled carefully, otherwise we leave the wrong things out. (laughs) This is very common, unfortunately. People can see the problem, they get fixated on a problem, or what's wrong, how things aren't the way they'd like them to be. Uh, fixate on that, and we don't widen our attention to, you know, we're on the edge of dying here. (laughs) Now's not the time to get picky around the kind of food or, (laughs) you know, who's sitting next to you or how hot it is or sound outside the window and these kinds of things. Yeah. Though these, you know, we can always imagine and truly things could be better. We can be adjusting conditions. Um, but you can keep adjusting conditions and they still always go out. You have to keep adjusting them again. And so a wise person decides to adjust their mind instead. <laughs> Adjust your attention. So this, because attention is selective and it has to be um, handled with wisdom, not compulsion. Uh, What's appropriate to give attention to? The Buddha said, you give attention to that through which skillful states arise. So for this you have to have awareness which is receptive. To notice what states are arising. So if we give attention to things that arouse irritation, then states to do with irritation arise. Give attention to things of where doubt can be there. What should I do with my life? Where am I going? Where should I be? What should I do? Then you give attention to that. Doubt will arise. And unfortunately, the untrained person somehow feels that just by fixating attention onto topics of doubt, uh, irritability, or desire, they'll get a resolution. I keep thinking about this, I'll come up with an answer. If I get another one of these, I'll be happy. If I adjust this, I'll be comfortable. And a wise person begins to recognize, no, this is, uh, um, this is endless, and it doesn't actually resolve. And resolving, you go a little bit deeper, take your attention deeper. Where do things come from? What's our foundation? Foundation, where do things arise from? They arise from where we're interested, where our attention gets grabbed. And you you want to have some say, no, I'm not going to let my attention just get grabbed. I'm going to place it somewhere. 
where possibly skillful states will arise. This is wise management. Because whatever you give attention to, your awareness will absorb that and unskillful or skillful states can arise from that. So, it's even without doing anything, the act of focusing attention itself is a source of karma. Right? The Buddha says contact is the source of karma, contact. Right? So, if you place your heart upon, you know, topics that make you angry, then probably anger will arise, there's karma. And you might think it's inevitable because this is wrong and she did that wrong and that's not the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe. But we're looking at how do we come out of suffering? Or how do we make other people right? Or who's right? Or <laughs> because that, there's a lot of people. <laughs> A lot of conditions, and most of it's not, we can't control it. Very little, very little you can control. But the, probably the best chance of controlling something is to control your own attention. Okay, looks like patience is needed. Looks like goodwill is needed. Looks like coming into the body is needed. Looks like breathing out is needed. Ah, yeah, you know these things. Once you disengage from compulsive attention, disengage from compulsive attention and listen deeply, you'll notice what's affecting you. And you've all, you all understand Buddhism at least the ideas, okay, you know, getting some craving, cravings happening, so what do I bring in with that, what do I meet that with? Feeling the sore, heatedness of craving, how unpleasant it is. It looks like it needs some medicine. So I recollect the limitations of sense contact, the decaying of things, changeability of things, the inability to be satisfied by sense contact. I mean, it's kind of bringing, reminding ourselves, so we allay that, that fever, craving, sense desire. And this is not just to um, kind of um, keep doing surgery, but to to realize oh, when, the, when the citta even momentarily releases itself from craving, irritation, there's a release of attachment. Now, so attachment or clinging is this affects attention. So attention gets clinging, it clings to things. It nags, it obsesses, it frets, it worries, it demands. Make it, you know, it's a very, it can be quite aggressive, forceful. 
backed up by this intention to get things a certain way. And just to learn how to release that. Not to suppress it, but to recognize that, because something is needed here. And what is needed, why is there attachment? What is the source of attachment? Craving for stability. Craving as something agreeable. Now, is it possible that the release from craving would actually be very comfortable? And the release from attachment would actually be very, to a place of great stability. Those wishes, those interests for happiness and for steadiness are very valid. The problem is that attaching doesn't do it, is not the remedy. The remedy is non-attaching, releasing. And the citta is then returned to its basic stability and begins to develop a sense of ease. So where we place attention, what's needed, what's helpful. And so often, as I've been suggesting, when uh, our lives are very much led by thinking mind, thinking it's, it's out there, it becomes unbalanced. The thinking mind can only deal with abstractions, ideas, should be, want to, what will. These are abstractions. They're not direct, tangible realities. They're abstractions. They're possibilities. Thinking mind's very good at that. It's like someone goes to a restaurant and there's a menu. Here's the menu. Thinking mind produces menus. But you don't eat the menu. <laughs> you can look at the menu. Actually, what do you need? You don't need 23 dishes. You just need one snack. And you don't eat the menu. You say, okay, that's enough. Now just really dwell upon that. Yeah. Take that in. So in the Buddha saying, okay, you want some sense of well-being and happiness. Recollect qualities that touch the heart, recollect qualities that touch the heart, recollect virtues, recollect the goodwill of others, recollect skillful mind states, skillful states of heart. Recollect these daily. These will be a source of happiness for you. You want happiness? Here it is. I'll tell you, there's another kind of happiness. Relinquished uh, craving and irritation calm the thinking mind and you get the happiness of samadhi you know when it feels body feels comfortable you saturate your body with breathing with awareness calm the nervous system calm the nervous energies you're going to find yourself feeling pretty happy and a sustainable steady happiness if you want this this is what you, you can do this and we do want it. Uh, and the beauty of the happiness of Dhamma is it's not just the pleasant feeling, though it is agreeable, but it also supports skillful mind states, skillful attitudes, skillful transformation 
of our aims and intentions. And this skillful uh, resetting, re-establishing of our aims and intentions then becomes the guide for what we think, what we think about, how we act. So you begin to learn how to release the compulsion, the fixation, the attaching, fixated attention, and the drive behind it. Recognize that chitta is hungry for something, and this system is not going to provide it. But you can provide the happiness and the stability. And these will be in line with skillful states of mind or skillful moods of heart, skillful intentions. So, yeah, and these skillful aims of mind or skillful basis, sankapa, right, then become the basis for the way we think. So we return to thinking again, but now thinking has got a firmer foundation than just the kind of random sense input and uh, programming of the material, materialist world, the consumer world, which is destructive. It's a destructive programming. If we look in general, yes, we have degrees of physical well-being, but we've left a huge trail, human beings leave a huge trail of destruction. Most every other animal, you know, we've wiped so many of them out, millions of them, billions of them, and destroyed a considerable amount of the environment, as well as each other, (laughs) by the billions. Yeah. So we need to reset. <laughs> and these are all done with, you know, considerable amount of careful thinking was behind the, or the destruction that's been caused was quite carefully planned. <laughs> but it wasn't samasankapa, it wasn't based upon right uh, foundation, right attitude. Right attitude, very simply speaking, uh, everything that's conducive to non-violence, non-violation, non-abuse. Yeah. We look at this area very broadly. Yeah. Uh, abuse, physical abuse, damaging other creatures, damaging our very life, biosphere in which we live through not caring for it, sense of taking advantage of it, siphoning off resources, and not looking after being properly responsible. If the planet is our mother, do we care for it? And in some ways we have to say the planet is the mother of this body. We feed on the elements the food, the water, the air. Uh, Do we respond as we should? 
and also to recognize that uh, human beings cannot function individually. We have to uh, both cooperate with the physical world, but also with other people. Get on with each other. What does it take to get born, even? You can't get born on your own. <laughs> You've only got you know, a whole group of people to get you born. <laughs> Not even your mother. More than your mother, just help the midwife and nurses and so forth, just to get born. Need a group of people <laughs> to learn how to operate as a human being. You need a group of people look after you, care for you, yeah. show you what's harmful, what's beautiful. To keep going, you need a group of people to share with, learn from, trade with, work together with. Yeah. When you get old, you need people to help you get around. When you die, you need people to deal with what remains. Either <laughs> dispose of the body and then tidy up all the leftover business that you left behind. So where does this idea of being an individual come from? <laughs> well, the individual aspect of it is you maintain individual conscience and concern. <laughs> That's your individual right and choice to maintain individual sense of responsibility, conscience and concern. Well, I'm going to help others. I'm going to look after others. I'm not going to abuse others. So just around this one resolve, your life turns from something that, that takes into something that gives and shares. And that's... Uh, um, the second right resolve or right basis is absence of cruelty. And cruelty is when we withdraw sympathy. Yeah. It means we don't really see other people as just like me. What do I mean by that? I mean, just like me, they don't want pain. Just like me, they need some food. Just like me, they need shelter. Just like me, they have happiness and sadness. Just like me, they get annoyed. Just like me, they get frightened. Just like me, they want to be friendly. Just like me, they have some virtues. Just like me, they have chitta. Just like me, they have the potential for enlightenment. Just like me. So this is the sense which we should always have as a foundation for how we regard others. Whether they've realized their potential or not, that's their, that's their responsibility. At least we acknowledge and uh, respect. And withdraw, when you withdraw sympathy, you start to treat people as objects. Oh, he's a policeman. Oh, you know, he's a railway worker. Oh, she's just a nurse. Do this, do that. <laughs> you know, oh, they're Spanish. Oh, those Russians. Oh, those Germans. Oh, those Japanese. Oh, the Chinese. Oh, you know, just put people in boxes and then we don't f feel for them. We treat them just as ideas and this is the way that people can kill each other and do. 
and not just humans, but if we widen this, and as a someone who seeks development, your aim is to keep widening and what you know and and fulfill it completely. Uh, how do we regard our other living creatures? And you know, people like to kill creatures just for fun, not even because they're threatening, but just because it's enjoyable to go fishing or shoot shoot a bird or shoot an animal because it's enjoyable. And this is when you have a right resolve, you can hardly believe it that people could be so insensitive, so obsessed with their own welfare and so callous towards other creatures. And it's quite shocking to just recognize how far away from awakening people's minds can go. How far away. So these things kind of give us a shock. And you think, my goodness. And one of the main causes of this, of course, is gratification. I want my pleasure, I want my fun, I want my enjoyment. This is, you know, I want to have something pleasing, enjoyable, fun, and so forth. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, you get to this. And so, well, this is why we developed the third one, which is renunciation. See, so my, my privilege is to be able to say, I'm bigger than that, I don't need that. I find my enjoyment elsewhere, I don't need to hang on to that. These things are, you know, beneath me. I don't need, they seem squalid. The idea of, you know, killing other creatures or drinking alcohol for fun. You know, for crazy. (laughs) Even eating just for fun is a bit misguided. Because food, when you eat food, you're taking it from somewhere. You can't grow it on your own body, you're taking it from the planet. So, you know, you're taking something. So you want to just take only what's necessary. If that sounds hard, like where's the enjoyment? Well, enjoyment is in skillful mind states. So this must always be, you know, you to recognize the, the innate happiness of feeling clear free from regret, clear, sensitive, caring, and steady, balanced. So we say, well, is that true? So then we say, well, let's just really, this is what we do in meditation, we're kind of using some quiet time to give deep, considered attention to what's beneath the thinking mind, the basis of it, the intentions, unconscious, conscious, deliberate, not deliberate, things we're only half aware of, casual intentions, motivation that's just kind of become inducted through our social 
social norms, everybody else does this, therefore I do it. So we do absorb a lot of the defilements of the society, of people who are not giving careful attention to the right things. So we're in that, we're affected by it. So this is a chance where you kind of clean. You go looking into the roots of that. How do you do that? Well, if you come into your body, you get a stability, and then if you come into your body, remember this, you come into body, your heart will open, because the two are the same. Thinking mind is abstract, deals with future, past ideas, the inner body and the heart are direct. They deal with what's really felt right now. What's happening directly felt where your energy shifts, where you feel yourself being lifted or pushed or tangled or cleared, that's going to be in this embodied condition. So you keep looking for to really know where you're at. This is where you go. The rest of it's just ideas, suppositions, worries, opinions, maybe, maybe so. Frankly, the thinking mind is not very good at dealing with where you're at. It tells you where you should be, what you could be. It compares you with other people. It compares you with what you should or could or might, and where you were and where you are. But it's not very good at, no, it's not good at telling you where you are. It's always moving away from the direct experience. Yeah. And in the hunger to find a sense of stability, it proliferates, which means it creates a whole set of ideas about who I am, based upon description of body, age, characteristics, what other people think, comparing oneself with this, measuring oneself according to social standards, social goals. These are all confused. So, wise person realizes they don't really fit in to any of these boxes, these fixed ideas. There's something quite free about it all. They're not definable. They're beyond thinking. They're beyond measuring. They're beyond comparison. Because these are all the actions of the thinking mind. Comparing, judging, you know, creating th- making things stable that aren't stable. And when we come into releasing the thinking mind, you sense there's something quite fluid, stable, warm, sensitive. Yeah. And that's, there's, that's that quality, kind of embodied awareness, another phrase you can use if you like these ideas. It'll give you a very immediate, it's like a, a suggesting it's rather like a lake. And if you drop a leaf on a lake, it will shiver. You get some resonance. So you begin to notice how you're being affected. 
when the lake is clearer. If it's not very clear, you throw a rock in it, it will certainly create some effects. Yeah. And if you begin to soothe it, it settles and stabilizes. So you begin to get a sense of what actions, what intentions, what attitudes, what preoccupations generate unskillful states, which generate skillful states. Uh, this is a very crucial foundation because this is where, you know, if you're looking at things like stream entry and on the passage to stream entry, this is definitely, you know, a, a big milestone. If you know what, where a skillful state is, you know what it feels like, you know where to find it, then for sure you're either a stream enterer or on the way for it because that's exactly what the stream enterer knows for sure and they know where to look and they can get some clear readout yeah. Yeah. they get a clear, ah, oh, that's not doing me any good, stop doing that Whereas a person who hasn't done that is just getting lost in ideas and emotional reactions. So we just, how do we know? Well, embodied awareness knows. And so this is where you have the foundation to establish your true path. Now we might say there's the eightfold path, and I'll even say there's the tenfold path. And this is like a very good map, but of course, like any other map, it's a map. And each individual has to do their own walking in their, what their capacities are, what their dispositions are. You know? But when you look at that map, it's pretty broad. Foundational one right view, Recognizing skillful states, unskillful states, and everything counts. Recognizing there is this world, another world, there are those who are liberated. This is a possibility. So we're not just believing in this world as the final statement of reality. So you can enter other worlds, the world of absorption, the spiritual world, devas and so forth. But also there's a way beyond all that. Now, if we look at remember, you re this is again very not just uh, kind of fantasy. If you look in the Metta Sutta, for example, we were chanting that earlier. In many ways, the instructions there are very pragmatic, able, capable, they're focused, they know what they're doing, upright, a sense of resolve, clarity, moral integrity. Right? There's integrity. And they know they don't deceive themselves, they're not deluded, they don't dismiss things as, as clear integrity there. Able, upright, straightforward, yeah. gentle in speech. These are definitely very manageable reference points that you can how is your speech? How's your how you how, what's your integrity? And just keep remembering. Okay. And this is not to judge, but it's to have clear assessment. So that's where it's going wrong, and this is where it makes straighter guiding. And if you follow that along, it says, you know, 
by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, free from sense-desire, is not born again into this world. That's right at the end. So you may have kind of got into the peace of loving-kindness everywhere. Yes, very good. And yet the final piece is, just quite quietly put at the end, by not holding to fixed views. And it's significant that the Buddha, perhaps a distinctive feature of Buddhism, is it's its focus on views. Not just good and evil, heaven and hell, but on views. Fixed views. Because this is exactly the lock that I've been talking about, fixed attention, but also fixed views. It means fixed views about right and wrong, fixed views about self and other, fixed views about mine and yours. Uh, as we recognize all our uh, actions, in, in the, all our viewpoints are approximations. So we don't get dogmatic or judgmental. And so we begin to see the, the, um, the human hunger to have fixed views. Tell me something to believe in. Can I believe in someone? Can I believe in something? And we see this particular attitude, political dogma, Fixed view. Religious dogma, fixed view. Fundamentalism, fixed view. Uh, and just creating new views to get fixated upon. And once you get a fixed view, people become insensitive to people of other views. And you get the quarreling and disputes. Uh, by not holding to fixed views, the person changes from black-white thinking, this is right and that's wrong, to this feels appropriate, this doesn't lead anywhere useful. That's more, more wisely assessed. Like It's not so much just that's wrong, but following that, where does it go? So we're asked to constantly feel where does a particular disposition, how, how far does it go? How good is it? How good is right when it becomes hard and judgmental and d- dismisses others? So beyond right and wrong, we have what the freedom from abuse, the freedom from insensitivity, and a sense of relinquishment. These make things very fluid and flexible in that we sense this direction is leading to something I don't feel suitable, it's not skillful, this one leads to unskillful mind states. And that's just a simple presentation. And things change. So as we uh, come from a meditation retreat, the protocols and procedures of the meditation retreat structure we've adopted here and silence times of course that's just the convention that will 
finish <laughs> in a few hours' time. So if you think, oh, this is the way you practice Dhamma, no. <laughs> this is one way you practice one aspect of it. Right? But if you hold this is the fixed view, this is, this is where we get the Dhamma going, then that means you've just limited the rest of your life. Uh, and so it can be like that, can't it, when we get into meditation as a fixed view. What's the right way to meditate? Where should you place your attention? Which system, which is the right system? You say, well, this Ajahn teaches this, that's the right way. Oh no, this one teaches that, that's the right way. <laughs> the right way is what works for you. That's what makes it right. Because <laughs> it works. Because it leads to skillful mind states. This is sometimes, oh, I feel confused. Well, what should I do? Well, it's just, okay, you feel confused. Well, just where does confusion come from? Trying to find a fixed view. Uh, where's the technique? I can push the button and get into stream entry as quick as possible. <laughs> well, maybe there isn't one. Maybe you've got to follow the Eightfold Path, take responsibility, cultivate skillful mind states. And, you know, to what extent is it useful to have the idea of stream entry, even? When does it become obstructive? When is it a useful view? When is it not a useful view? It's useful when we get the sense of, oh, there's somewhere deeper I could go. And this is taking me to something that's flowing with confidence into Dhamma practice. Then it's useful. But it becomes obstructive. We think, am I a stream entry? Is she a stream entry? He doesn't look like a stream entry. It looks like he's never going to be a stream entry. I don't think I can do it. Then it's just proliferation your thinking mind and it becomes an obstruction. So you say then if you don't need these views, don't have them. Yeah. So as a imagine Buddhadasa, one of the eminent monks in Thailand, one of the very eminent teacher, they asked him one time, it's a bit gross really, said, Are you where are you on this? Are you a stream enterer or a non returner? Well, he says, I don't bother with any of that. I just want to know, is there any suffering left? <laughs> any stressing left? Look at that. You know. So you recognize that trying to have a fixed view is stressful, isn't it? You're trying to contain with an idea in your head. Yeah? And you can't do it. So a stream enterer is someone who, who doesn't concern themselves with being a stream enterer. <laughs> They've put that idea away. <laughs> They're just looking at where's any degree of irritation or, or craving. <laughs> Let's keep doing that. You know? So you've actually got a direct experiential reference to the path you know in yourself rather than just looking at maps all the time.
Yeah. So, when we recollect the Eightfold Path, I'm sure there's many it's a, aspects you can contemplate, but I'd like to just move on to the Tenfold, because this is perhaps the piece you don't hear so much of. Tenfold Path is the eight first factors, then the ninth is Samanyana. Samanyana means fulfilled awareness, that's one translation, or right knowing, or balanced knowing, or consummate knowing, fulfilled awareness. And um, tenth is Samavimutti, right release, right liberation. So again, if we, and we can, these are then, these are fruitions. Eightfold path, and these are the fruitions of the eightfold path. Now again, the, the with any map like this, the one can feel a kind of like a ladder climbing up to some further point, and then it's actually more like a cycle whereby every time you get some kind of Release. Sometimes you get some kind of insight. You're getting jnana. Oh. So it doesn't mean it's all over. It just means you're 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 getting that momentary entry into. So even if it's just a moment or a few moments, this is samanyana. It means what the awareness is not fettered. It's not. Evolve with constant ideas of oneself, ideas and constructions. Uh, it's not fettered by sense desire. It's quite clear and restful. And very simple word, I use balance. Balance, it means there's no pressure one way or another. And this is actually not so, it's a kind of an attainment, but really what it is, it's a clearing to reveal what is there, is there already, but we don't notice. Because our intentions, our attitudes, our minds are pointing in the wrong way. Now again, if we use the example of the body, I've mentioned this before, bring back your attention again. What does balance mean in the body? You get various sensations which you associate with the physical body. Sensations, and you get your body feels unsteady, or it's leaning on one leg, so there's a certain sense of pressure down one side, or it's unsteady, rocking around. At a certain point, it steadies. When it steadies, you get the sense of the weight of the body begins to lessen because all the weight of the body is being carried by the earth. Yeah, and if you really absorb into that sense of just aligning the body so that muscles aren't doing anything other than just maintaining stability, feeling the weight of the body being carried by the earth, and then really knowing that, trusting it, relaxing the grip in the chest or the neck or the belly or the face, allowing yourself to sense that, you get a sense of balance. 
So the quality of balance, it doesn't feel. It's not pleasant. It's, it's kind of pleasant in that it's not about strong feeling. Hmm. It's a kind of clear light. And yet it's very strong because everything in the body is being kind of gathered around that balance. And the weight and the pressure and the tension releases. And having to hold it releases. And then you get that sense of, oh, this thing stands on its own. I don't need to keep holding it together. Now, this is something that we can um, experience through careful body work, and just there, as an example, something very practical, nothing you know that esoteric. But when we drop the mind into that, and we bring our awareness to that, we also recognize how our minds are so often just being pushed one way or another, one inclination, one counter-inclination, one project, one memory, one fantasy, one worry, you know, one doubt, one affirmation, just being pushed around by different tides of opinions and views, emotions and memories, <laughs> wobbling just around that way. And it's all dukkha. <laughs> and something you want to just dismiss it all, but that doesn't work. You just get more agitated. So finding where is the knowing of all that, awareness of that, which doesn't react. Yeah. And so the body will lead you there. If you find this place in your body, if you find the balance, the wholeness, and the ease in the body, that will lead your awareness there, to that place in your heart. Well, check it out. Maybe I got it wrong. But But then there's no opinion. There's no, no sense of what I should be. There's no worry about what I was. There's no ideas about myself. That, that stops. My opinions about others don't happen. There's no opinions there. There's no, I've realized something, I've now become a stream entry. No, that's not there either. <laughs> the sense of, this is so ordinary, it's amazing. The absence of all these currents and flows and colorings and flavorings and feelings and ideas, just the absence of that is a relief. And this is the vimuti, you think, oh, oh I just come out of a, out of a nightmare. <laughs> just come out of a daydream, you know, where was all that? Just that moment, released. Now this again, this may be just even few seconds or a minute or two once you but once you've touched it something hey what was that it's possible and then probably one habit that comes is oh i'd like to do that again now that habit i want to do that again i want to get hold of that 
there's the attachment comes in again because you, know, you want to have it and get it and be it. You know, I'm definitely one of these. I'm proves I'm a stream enterer. I've got it. I've got my certificate. I can have it tattooed on my arm. <laughs> and then you've got to go, okay, keep looking at that, getting excited, getting, you know, you just relax. <laughs> you know, then you've got to go through the whole eightfold path again. Yeah. And so it's a process, the progressive deepening, yeah, as we go through these, these moments, but to recognize there is a possibility. And when every time there's that release, then when you, again, pick up the thinking mind, thinking mind has now been tamed. It knows its limitations. You know its limitations. Yeah. You know where it can pull you, and you know that thinking mind. And you say, I can use you, but you're not going to use me. <laughs> you trained it. I'll use you, but you're not going to use me. I can direct it, and then that's enough. Thank you. Stop. Put it aside. So we say, okay, then what do you want to use this for? Certainly the Buddha did plenty of thinking. Yeah. But what was the motivation? Compassion. Generosity. Sympathy. Resonance. There are the beings who have got some little dust in their eyes. Yeah. So because of that, then right resolve and then the thinking to try to formulate practices and processes that would be for the welfare of others. So yes, there is right thinking. There's right action. There's right livelihood. And it's up for us to constantly keep checking these features and aspects of our lives, not to dismiss them, not to say, oh, this is all just worldly truth and I'm into ultimate bliss. But these are uh, pathways, necessary pathways, necessary factors for right knowing and right release. It places us back in the center of our lives with a sense of responsibility that's not heavy. It's just, oh, what else is there to do? Mm -hmm. While we have the strength and the life and the capacity, what else can we do with it? Mm -hmm. So I'll pause there for now.